All right. Thank you so much for joining us today on today's podcast. This is an Elite Pharmaceutics production, and I'm your host, Matthew Hermano. Elite Pharmaceutics is a podcast that brings you objective sports medicine data in an unbiased fashion. I am a pain management palliative care trained pharmacist with an interest in sports medicine, anti-doping, pain management, and mental health. And in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about a very new breakdown of Camilla Valieva, the Winter Olympics figure skater that recently tested positive for a banned substance known as trimetazidine. We're going to be talking about the entire story behind this breakdown, really, when the uh, the story timeline, but when they actually tested positive up until like now the actual events and what the he said, she said story is behind it all. Um, also going to be talking about trimetazidine in terms of its mechanism of action, its literature and support its use for angina and chronic heart failure, the potential adverse drug reactions, and also like the dosing regimen that it would be used for the medication. We're going to be talking about the urine drug assay limits for trimetazidine, just to see what they are within the World Anti-Doping Agency. And then we're also going to talk about the other two drugs that were found in her system as well, L-carnitine and a drug known as hypoxin. So let's get into it and start talking about the background. Camilla Valieva is a 15-year-old female skater that's currently ranked number five in the world and competing in the Beijing Winter Olympics. She's a world record holder in the women's short program, free skate, and also total score overall. And she recently tested positive for three different substances, one of which is on the World Anti-Doping Agency banned substance list. This substance is known as trimetazidine, or the brand name is Metagard. And it is known as a metabolic modulator that can potentially increase endurance, decrease fatigue, and improve your oxygen efficiency. She also had substances known as hypoxin and L-carnitine also in her system, which they believe she was taking due to, known, due to heart quote-unquote variations. And there's a specific timeline that this all occurred, so we're going to be discussing that now. In December 25th of 2021 on Christmas, the patient submitted a urine sample, which then took over 20 days to return to a Swedish laboratory due to quote-unquote COVID backlogs. So a very long delay for this sample to come back prior to her entering the Winter Olympics. Now we fast forward to February 8th, 2022. She helped Russia, the Russia country win gold for the team events and figure skating, team figure skating. Subsequently, after she had the positive test results come back from this laboratory and received a provisional suspension, which upon appeal was cleared by the Russian Anti-Doping Agency on February 9th, 2022. On February 13th, 2022, the International Skating Union and the World Anti-Doping Agency reviewed this case and also heard the case, and then there was removal of her provisional suspension that was upheld on February 14th. This patient was determined or deemed to be a minor at the time and a protected person being under the age of 16. So this broadened the investigation to look at other potential coaches and trainers that may have impacted this patient actually receiving the medication. 
And as a result, it allowed her to compete at the next events. However, any medals won would be withheld pending the final results of this juror distinction. So there are two big things that really were listed here. The patient, uh, keep saying patient, the athlete was a protected person under the World Anti-Doping Agency Code. And interestingly enough, the athlete did not test positive during the Olympic Games at Beijing. This is a previous test that was performed back in December that resulted much, much later. But I want to talk about also really what's going on here with um, L-carnitine as well. So if you guys ever heard the story behind um, Alberto Salazar back in 2019, there were a lot of IV administrations of L-carnitine which is banned by the World Anti-Doping Agency for having similar effects. And so it's, this isn't like a substance that hasn't been discussed before in inappropriate circumstances. However, when it's given orally, it's allowed with the World Anti-Doping Agency. There was a member of the International Olympic Committee that thought the contaminant could possibly do to the grandfather of this athlete. So there were stories behind the grandfather helping out the athlete and staying with her and bringing her back and forth to like train during the Olympics. So there's some theories behind how if there was a swap of someone, she drank her, her grandfather's drink and the grandfather has come on um, TV saying that he takes his medication for his heart, that that could possibly be a reason why it got into the blood. And interestingly enough, Camilla declared the L-carnitine, hypoxin, and supradin an immune booster with the Olympics Committee. So really from here, the World Anti-Doping Agency wanted to suspend Valieva, but as I mentioned, her suspension was withheld or upheld, and she was allowed to compete. And now we're going to be talking about trimetazidine for a little bit. So trimetazidine is a medication that inhibits the beta oxidation of fatty acids by blocking long chain and 3-ketoacetyl-CoA thiolase. So basically what this does is it improves the increases the metabolic rate of glucose and decreases oxygen consumption and there's an inhibition of cardiac fibrosis and it really decreases myocardial infarction related necrosis. So what does this all mean? This basically means that if we think about think about your nitrates, think about a drug called renolazine, it works similarly by basically preventing your heart from straining as much and decreasing your oxygen consumption in the heart. So you have less what they call is ischemic demand, and it's good for patients that have angina or heart pain or um, chest pain. So there is literature for trimetazidine with stable angina where it's actually added to a beta blocker. So you think of your beta blockers it's added to metoprolol. And there's some literature actually where it can improve total exercise duration, not by a significant amount, only a couple seconds, but it is statistically significant. And it can improve the total workload and time to onset of angina, angina attacks. So there's actually literature to support that, um, but not in a athletic population though. And Again, there's literature to support its use in patients with chronic heart failure. So it can improve your left ventricular ejection fraction by about 9% in some studies. And there's also a study with patients with dilated cardiomyopathy that it can increase your HDL, your good cholesterol, or your good lipids, sorry. And 
lower blood glucose and actually can improve insulin levels. So this medication has a lot of different effects. Um, also, it could decrease your energy, your the rate of energy expenditure. There's literature to show it can do that by about 100 kilo, um, calories per day, which was statistically significant. And there's even data to show that it can decrease hospitalizations for chronic heart failure and decrease overall mortality. So there's a lot of literature to support the use of trimetazidine in patients with angina and stable angina and chronic heart failure. But again, like I said, there's no literature really to show what its effects are in an athletic population. So interestingly, they got the take of a sports cardiologist, Dr. Benjamin Levine at the University of Texas Southwest Med School. And he basically weighed in saying that it was unlikely it improved performance. And he made a claim that the effects are not long lasting, probably owing to its half-life, which is about six to seven hours. You have to take it multiple times a day for it to actually have effect. So there, and again, he mentioned there's no literature in existence analyzing performance effects in athletes. However, there is incidence of use of this medication before. If this was a blind medication that the first time it popped up on this patient, the first time it's happened in the Olympics, I would be kind of, uh, I would take it with a grain of salt. But I mean, this is different. This isn't a medication that's been used like once this one time. It's historically been used. If you look at the data on the Olympics and its use in Poland alone, it's been used as a doping agent. They've used it on many, they did a retrospective analysis of a lot of patients that had or athletes that had used this medication before for its supposed athletic endurance enhancing effects. So while whether it actually, there's no literature to support its use that improves athletic events, uh, athletic performance, it has been used and found before. So it's not a random occurrence and it could potentially help. Dr. Donald Lloyd-Jones, the president of the American Heart Association at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, also weighed in on this. He said it's implausible that a little of the medication on a glass or skin would result in a positive test unless it happened just before the provided sample. And from this, again, I, I'm a little hesitant to give an opinion whether, whether I think that the actual medication itself is being taken by mouth or if she actually swapped saliva on like a, a glass or a bottle with her grandfather. But we're going to be talking about that next, um, really looking at the minimum requirements of the performance limit with a urine assay with this medication. Again, I just wanted to point out that there was a study that looked at the use of trimetazidine over the years in athletics and its potential cases of doping. So as I mentioned earlier, this isn't a brand new drug that's been used. In 2014, Sigmund and others had a journal uh, that was published in the Drug Test Analysis Journal that looked at a retrospective review from 1999 to 2013 where they used gas chromatography and mass spectrometry and also liquid chromatography mass spec. And they retrospectively went back and looked at the urine drug samples based on this and analyzed molecular weight and identified that there were potentially 151 cases of use of trimetazidine based on its molecular structure. And breaking this down from the 151 cases over the past 14 years, they identified that about 44% were endurance athletes, 39% were athletes for strength, 
primarily, and then the other athletes were about 17%. And interestingly, there was better identification of the drug itself versus the numerous metabolites that it could possibly be picked up. So again, this isn't a brand new drug. This has been picked up before on in past uses, especially in Poland as well. There's a lot of literature to support its use specifically in Poland and athletes in Poland. And it's not a first time use of the medication. So that's why like it's a red flag in my opinion when trimetazidine flags because it's already been tried to use, it's been used before in doping instances potentially. So there also is a literature that supports the use of the assay criteria. So what we need to know in this case is what was the amount of drug detected in her sample that flagged the assay and what was the minimum cutoff criteria. So because this is a section S6 drug, the minimum required performance limit is 50 to 100 nanograms per ml. So what does this mean exactly? What dose of the drug needs to actually be given to achieve this and at what point in time can this occur? Because it's obviously important to understand how fast it breaks down the body. As athletes, if you're trying to dope, you want to get something in and out of your system quickly for an athletic event. So there was a study by Jarek and others that looked at six patients that had used um, trimetazidine. And five of the patients were rather young. They were around 20 to 50 years old. And they got a dose of 35 milligrams once a day. And then there was also a patient over the age of 65 that got 35 milligrams twice a day. And they looked at the breakdown in the body and they looked at max serum concentration, the actual plateau in concentration and the amount over the time period in which it was given. So the max serum concentration was found to occur exactly five hours after ingesting a dose. And there was a plateau in concentration at about 60 hours after permanent, permanently using therapy. So for a chronic period of time. They found that the concentrations after 72 hours for one of the patients was, was over um, 100 nanograms per ml. So the actual concentration for this one patient at 72 hours after taking one dose of 35 milligrams was 131 nanograms per ml, which would flag positive for our minimum required limits, which was 50 to 100. So this would flag, and this goes to show you that this is one example of it as well. And at 24 hours, there was all the patients that were in the study roughly had, there was only one patient that was just below 1,000 nanograms per ml at 24 hours, and it was 966. Everyone else was greater than 1,000 nanograms per ml, and that's at 24 hours. So if this was taken by this athlete, um, it would be something recent that she took, and likely in an oral dosage that she may or may not know that she took and may have been given by someone else, a trainer, a coach, but it is possible. So the different dosing for it too, as I want to just reemphasize, is there's immediate release tablets that it could be 20 milligrams up to three times a day. And then there's also like an SR tablet, which I believe was used in this study, which is 35 milligrams twice a day. So again, objectively looking at this data, it flagged positive, meaning it was above the cutoff criteria for 50 nanograms per ml. And we know, and now in literature, granted it's a small sample size, However, patients that received 35 milligrams once a day at 24 hours, they were well above the 1,000 nanograms per ml, which would have flagged for this. Even at 72 hours, it could have flagged for this. So there's a good chance that she received an oral medication with this specific, this oral trimetazidine at this dose. There's a good chance.
Now let's talk about L-carnitine a little bit because I think this is also really interesting. L-carnitine is a carrier molecule for long chain fatty acids within mitochondria and it facilitates energy production. You can get L-carnitine in your dietary consumption, you can get it in red meat and dairy, and it's found in skeletal muscle and the myocardium as well. It's commonly used as an antidote for acute valproic acid toxicity, and generally we'll see some athletes take about three to four grams of L-carnitine before a physical exercise to improve exercise exhaustion. There's contradicting evidence whether it helps with oxygen consumption, max running speeds, and decreasing heart rate. And there's also some contradictory evidence as to its, as to like um, different levels being decreased of plasma lactate after using L-carnitine. I think that after reviewing a bunch of literature on L-carnitine, even orally, it has the potential to influence athletic endurance, and it can decrease heart rate and increase speed potentially. So it's kind of a dangerous game that now, if this patient is now claiming they didn't even know they were taking trimetazidine, but they're also on L-carnitine is a little suspicious to me. In general too, um, a decreased plasma carnitine level in the muscle has been shown during high intensity exercises. So a lot of athletic uh, endurance events, patients or, or athletes will take it afterwards. As I mentioned, oral use of L-carnitine is legal in World Anti-Doping Agency, and the IV use is illegal. So honestly, like you're gonna get more dietary absorption of L-carnitine, which is about 75%, versus the oral bioavailability of a supplement, which is only five to about 20%. So, and then if you give it IV, obviously you're gonna get 100% of its absorption. So there's a definite potential for improved effects with this using IV, but this patient was using it orally, which is different. Regarding the use of hypoxin, I truly can't give an opinion on this medication as I don't actually know much literature about it. There's some theoretical um, benefits that have been proposed on the internet, whether it helps with cardiac endurance, um, but I don't know the actual like benefits of the medication. However, just wrapping this all up, the use of trimetazidine in combination with L-carnitine in an athlete gives suspicion that they were using this medication to potentially increase endurance and decrease fatigue and improve oxygen efficiency. Objectively looking at this data, there is not literature to show that trimetazidine has improved athletic endurance. However, it has been used in the past in Poland and other athletic events, and this has been proven. And there is literature to support the support that the dose that she flagged positive for under urine assay had to have been at least an oral dose that was likely in a milligrams of 35 milligrams or higher for its therapeutic use. Otherwise, she wouldn't have flagged positive at that minimum cutoff criteria of a 50 nanograms per ml. And this can stay in your system for up to like 24 to 72 hours realistically. So understanding that and also the use of L-carnitine, L-carnitine in addition, knowing that L-carnitine still, while not a banned substance, has similar effects and athletes will use this post-heavy endurance workouts to benefit and decrease the amount of lactic acid and improve energy efficiency, it makes me believe that the patient, uh, the athlete potentially didn't know that they were receiving it, but we're getting an oral dose of this medication. 
We've reviewed all the data for this now and given a lot of objective data points into the literature behind trimetazidine and its pharmacokinetics and dynamics and effects and breakdown of the drug in the body, the urine assay criteria cutoffs, what it has for a benefit possibly in athletic endurance, and also looked into L-carnitine as well. And we even talked about some of the previous uh, incidences of trimetazidine in athletics within the Olympics, going back to the past 15 years of its incidence and use. So this is a very controversial subject that I'm very eager to see what the end result will be for it. But we've discussed a lot of objective data, and I will rest my case there. Ultimately, you can decide as the audience what you think and what you believe is going on in this scenario. Thank you so much again for tuning into this podcast for Elite Pharmaceutics. Again, this is Matthew Hermano, and I look forward to seeing you next on the podcast.